danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the day when you give in. Give in. Hello and welcome to episode 410 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland, whose area code is 410, by the way. I'm Andrew Brookes. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. I will say area codes aside, uh, today is not the greatest day to be in the D.C. metro area. Uh, We are recording this on June 8th, and uh, we are inundated by wildfire smoke. I know this is something that the West Coast has experienced before, but uh, it's the first time for the East Coast. And I believe this is still, um, just so West Coast people don't get too high and mighty, I believe this is still the third worst air quality event that the United States has ever experienced. So uh, we are we are getting it pretty bad here. Whoa, yeah, third worst sounds pretty bad for sure. Anyway, it's nice to be <laughs> take my mind off of that and be recording some podcast material with you. Uh, what we have planned for today, we did one of these before, and I think we we enjoyed it and it was very popular with the audience as well. We're going to do like a rapid fire trying to go through a bunch of hands submitted by $5 patrons to our Patreon, which is over at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And the way that works, if you're not a member, we have a couple of tiers and people in the higher tiers get priority for us to answer their hands. We put out an episode uh, every weekday. And essentially, it's gotten popular enough that the people in the $5 tier don't often get their hands on the regular show. I mean, they still get to listen to to other people's hands. But what we've done, or what Carlos has done, really, is saved for us the the hands from $5 subscribers. And every once in a while, we do an episode of the regular podcast and just try to hammer out a bunch of those. So uh, that's what we have in store for today. When I say rapid fire, it's going to be rapid fire for us. So as opposed to doing one hand in half an hour, you know, maybe we'll get three or four hands in in, in half an hour. Exactly. Yes. Uh, So again, if you do want to uh, get your own hands or get access to Thinking Poker Daily, support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. I do really recommend that. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm a biased party, but we have a lot of fun with it. I think the strategy content there is really good. So if if you enjoy the show, I don't think you're going to regret signing up for Thinking Poker Daily. And if you do, you can just quit after a month and it won't be a big deal. (laughs) But I I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, I was actually uh, talking to Gloria about this yesterday and um, we did a coaching session with a new student. We were telling them about it and um, I was I, it, like it just came out of my mouth that, you know, we just did uh, like we've done like 600, epi- 600 episodes of it. And if you sign up, um, you get access to, you know, all that back catalog. And when I said it that way, I was like, damn, that's a lot of content for that price. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at this point, like, you know, there's just like uh, it's, it's so such good value uh, for thinking public daily for sure. Yeah, I mean, if, if if you need the money that bad, sign up, download six hundred episodes, and quit. Like, if if you really yes. need it, go for it. Yeah, yeah, we don't mind. Um, so that's Patreon.com/slash Thinking Poker Daily. Uh, also, the show is sponsored by GTO Wizard. And uh, one of the perks of supporting us on Patreon is that you do get entered into a drawing to win a one-month starter membership at GTO Wizard. 
you also there's a lot of free content that's very good on the GTO Wizard blog, which is blog.gtowizard.com. I put out an article roughly once a week on there. A lot of other good people writing stuff for there as well, and that again is totally free, so you don't even have to subscribe to uh, anything in order to get access to that. But there are also fantastic features on GTO Wizard and the. The articles, you know, at least the ones that I write, are making use of some of the features on GTA Wizard to uh, explore in depth, I think, some pretty important poker strategy topics. <clears throat> yes. Um, anything else before we get into our hints? Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm looking forward to some rapid fire. Let's All right. You want to read William's question? Yes. So we're going to start off with a hand submitted by William. William asks, um, I have a question about running it more than once. When I'm an underdog, I usually try to run it once. When I'm a favorite, I try to run it twice or as many times as I can get. Is this correct? What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are, I think we can actually answer this one in rapid fire <laughs> fashion, uh, which is that it, from an EV perspective, it does not matter. The, the number of times you run it does not influence your expected value. It does influence your variance. So running it more than once reduces your variance. It makes it possible that you can get 50% of the pot instead of 100% or 0%. Uh, generally, people consider it a good thing to reduce variance. There is a famous thing from uh, Barry Greenstein's book, Ace on the River. He says he never runs it twice because he wants people to be afraid of playing big pots with him. He finds that useful. So there could be like strategic reasons why you might want to have a reputation for like refusing to run it twice or something. But in general, um, I think other than like slowing down the game very slightly, do make sure you tip the dealer if if you run it twice. Uh, maybe you tip them a little something extra. It is a bit of extra work for them. But um, yeah, it, it does not influence your expected value at all. Yes, yes. All right. Awesome. Thank you, William, for <laughs> making it easy for us to uh, to rapid fire here. Yes. Next question is from Michael. Uh, this one is a hand, and in this hand, the cutoff raises to the cutoff makes a small raise. Uh, the button calls. We don't know if this looks like a tournament. So cutoff raises in a tournament. Button calls. Small blind folds. Big blind calls. So three handed to the flop. Uh, we are, first of all, we are in the big blind with ace 10 offsuit. Um, should we just be calling here or should this, or should this be a squeeze? And this looks three handed. So this might be like a final table. Uh, I think he may have just only shared the stacks of the players who were uh, involved in the hand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty shallow here. The, so the original razor or no, we're not. Never mind. We're 40 blind. Well, I was thinking we we're 20 blind steep or 40 blind steep. Yeah. And it's four handed. There was a player that folded. Okay. So yeah, the, the cutoff covers us. They open the the button calls off a 20 big blind stack, and then we're in the big blind with ace 10 offsuit and a 40 big blind stack. Um I think this is actually a call. I literally the, the thing I'm working on for the GTA Wizard blog right now involves overcalling in in the big blind. And it is the case that and this is a pretty counterintuitive, I think, that it's actually correct to call less often in the big blind when someone else has called in front. So if you think about if you were just heads up against the cutoff, what your calling frequency would be, that calling frequency should go down as a result of the button calling. It is harder to win three-way pots, harder to win multi-way pots, um, even though you're getting a better price. Uh, your three-bet frequency also goes up. I don't know if it goes up enough... I think ace 10 is like right on the cusp of, of whether or not this is strong enough to three bet. And I think if we assume that the button's calling range is wider than it should be, that's going to make ace 10 an extra appealing 
three bet. So I think there's a fair chance um, that you know people, if anything, call more than they should on the button, call with weaker hands than they should, and that would make three betting more appealing. So yeah, that that's a great thought, and I would just say that it, it's close. This is a reasonable hand to overcall with. Um, it has potential to make a straight. You will dominate some of your opponent's range. The hands that that really like to fold here are like disconnected. So like a six offsuit is not a great calling hand. King five offsuit is a very bad calling hand. Queen eight offsuit even is is possibly a fold, even though it does have a little bit of straight potential. Uh, like disconnected offsuit cards are are the worst hands to overcall with. This these are big and they are somewhat connected. So I think this is good enough to not fold. And it's a close decision whether to squeeze. Right. In this case, uh, our hero decided to call and checks to the cutoff who checks as well as the original razor. And now it's on the button who bets 4K. So I don't know what size of the pot that is. Like maybe we, we should also establish that the flop is 10 of spades, four of spades, yeah. four of diamonds. <laughs> yes, yes. Flop 10. Uh, we have the flop here. And now the dealer bets, the button bets. And we have top pair, top kicker. Um, yeah, this is, I definitely, well, actually, let me ask your thoughts on this. Should we just call or raise? Uh, I think raising is probably good. The, this bet is maybe like half pot or even a little bit less than half pot. So it's not a particularly large raise. Uh, it's not a particularly large bet. Um, and there is still going to be a player behind us. So one of the nice things about raising is you do deny a little bit of equity to the cutoff. This exact hand doesn't benefit so much from that because a lot of the Cutoffs fold are going to be hands we dominate, like ace king, ace queen, ace jack. So we don't necessarily mind like those overcall. I think we'd be even more interested in raising if we had a weaker ace, believe it or not. So like I think jack ten benefits more from raising because you might make your make the cutoff fold two overcards that would otherwise call, uh, or like ten nine could be a slightly better raise. the The point of raising is not necessarily to push a big equity advantage against the the button who's betting. It's also not to bluff and take the pot down immediately. It's to deny equity to the cutoff while still having reasonably good equity against the buttons calling range. So I think ace-10 is like a fine raising candidate. It's probably not as important of a raise. I think it might be more of a mix as opposed to something like 10-9, which might be a pure raise. Right. Uh, in this case, our hero decided to raise and the cutoff calls after having checked as a pre-plot raiser. Uh, that's a little bit weird. And the button yeah, that's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, and the button falls. Uh, uh, but now the turn is a four, so we now have a vote. So the board is 10, four, four, four. We have ace 10. Now what should we do on the turn? Uh, I'm with you. That, that, that cold <laughs> call from the cutoff is quite scary. Uh, I mean, you can hope it's like pocket nines, even if it is, I wouldn't necessarily expect it's continuing to another bet. I think there's a fair chance it's a bigger pair. Um, pocket tens would make sense, although we are blocking that pretty hard. But I mean, this seems like something that's that's slow playing and really does not care about having fold equity at all. Uh, which like tens and aces strike me as the most likely hands for for that purpose. So I, I would check and like, I guess call a small bet and fold to a big one. Hero agrees, and we go check check on the turn, which is nice. <laughs> and the river is the quintessential blank deuce of hearts. And uh, now actions on us here. Do we bet at this point or same plan from the turn? I could see a blocking bet, you know, bet like 10% of the pot. 
Uh, and maybe you still get called by, you know, if, if it's a stubborn ace king or pocket nines or something like that, when you're out of position, you don't have that concern of a small bet reopening the pot. So you can try to like squeeze a little bit of value. Um, and I mean, I, I do think with them checking behind the turn, the chances of us having the best hand have, have gone up. I don't think anything good happens. Like, I don't think we're inducing a lot of bluffs by checking. That would really be the only advantage of check calling would be to try to induce bluffs. And I don't know what hand they like cold call the flop with and then check behind the turn that would need to bluff the river. So I think our options here are either bet for value, which would need to be a very small bet, or check and fold. Those are the those are the two options. Yes, I agree. And in this case, our hero decided to check the cutoff goals all in. And I can't quite tell if hero called, but we do know the results. Yeah, the, the hero called. Okay, so hero called and unfortunately lost to pocket aces. <laughs> so our, our suspicion was correct here. And... Yeah, this would have been a better um, line for a better time for a um, small blocking bet fold to a raise or just check fold, which I know Zebo theorem says is impossible, but not if you're uh, a Thicket Poker podcast um, listener. That's right. If if all you're doing is valuing your hand based on what the board looks like, it seems like you have a very strong hand here. You know, like but given the action and, and with the player, I mean, this is very significant in a three-way pot. So there's the, when this person cold calls your flop raise, not only is your flop raise pretty strong, like there's a real chance you have a four when you do this, you have the trips, uh, but also the button who bet the flop is still left act behind them and you know, they could have a strong hand. So the, the cutoffs call on the flop is just extremely strong and we should be very wary of, you know, whatever we're still ahead of is not a hand they'll be looking to shovel more money into the pot. The I was hoping they had like pocket nines. Pocket nines is not a hand mm. that's going to shove the river. I think it's a good exercise rather than to just you know make make a play based on what your cards are to ask yourself what am I hoping to see if I call here? What two cards do I think this player is going to turn over that I could expect to be ahead of? And you know, then then you have to ask yourself you know if, if it is a weak hand that's trying to bluff, why did that weak hand call the flop check raise? Why did that weak hand not bluff the turn when when you checked to them? And you know if I I think that despite the apparent strength of your hand, the only thing you can beat is a bluff, and this is not a bluff. Yes. Don't forget targeting people. Targeting. It, it matters when you're calling just like it does when you're betting. Yeah. Name, name a target. All right. This next hand comes from Eric at your old stump. Is, at your, I shouldn't say old. <laughs> Feels like old at this point, uh, but your, your stumping grounds here at Maryland Live. Uh, you want to tell us about this one? Uh, yeah, so this is a $300 tournament. The uh, current payout is 612 k up top, but um, the payouts for the next nine spots before we get to the final table are pretty shallow. Villain is a very active slash loose but thinking player who covers the hero. Villain opens to three big blinds from the cutoff, and our hero is in the big blind with king three of clubs. So we're at the... Um, Technically, the final three tables, I guess, 20 people remaining in this tournament. So there's like ICM is, is getting to be a factor. We're facing a 3x raise from the cutoff. We're in the big blind with king three of clubs, uh, and we are covered by the cutoff. Uh, so I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm definitely calling a min raise with this. I, I don't have a real strong sense of like, I mean, ICM does discourage us from from calling from the big blind. Do you feel like the 3x is enough to make this an unappealing call? Yes, but I'm a nit. So um, <laughs> I happily fold this hand. Um, and honestly, even like a 2.5 hour fold. And if 
you know, I'm feeling uh, whatever the opposite of froggy is. I might, uh, <laughs> you know, fold to a mid raise and just never tell anyone. So, but to, yeah. to a three X, yeah, I'm definitely folding, um, being covered um, this deep uh, in a, into a tournament for sure. Yeah, I, I do think it's useful to kind of think about because what, what Eric says here is, you know, suited kings against a relatively wide cutoff open can't be a fold. And I mean, I, that's a reasonable rule of thumb, but ideally you think this is a little bit more and you kind of say, well, what am I hoping for if I call here? Probably, I mean, there's a few different kinds of flops. There's the flops where you make a pair of kings. That's a very good outcome. There's a flop where you make a pair of threes. That's not so great. Um, you have you have a decent amount of equity there, but it's difficult to realize equity. And one of the things about ICM and being covered this deep in a tournament, it, equity your equity realization goes down because the player who covers you can apply uh, pressure on you as a result of like the the ICM dynamics. It is harder for you to take marginal hands to showdown. So the value of flopping a pair of threes is going to go down. I think we're shallow enough that the value of flopping a pair of kings does not really go down. Like I think we're shallow enough that even even covered at the final three tables, we can stack off and we flop top pair against the cutoff with the king. But that's not going to be true for for bottom pair. Uh, you know, the other thing that can happen is you can get king high. King high has some showdown value against the cutoff. Has some equity, even if you don't hit the flop per se, you still have some equity against the cutoff that equity is always getting denied to you. Like there are not very many scenarios where you're taking King high unimproved past the flop. Even King high with a backdoor flush draw is going to be kind of, kind of dicey. You can flop a flush draw. Then you're in a spot where you're sort of calling and hoping to get there, or you're running a big semi bluff, which is not really a great thing to do in, under ICM conditions. So I, I don't feel like this is like a slam dunk fold. I don't even, I'm not even convinced the call is wrong, but I think Eric's a little too glib about just their, oh, shrug, of course I have to call with this. I think you do want to be thoughtful about these things and you know consider what it means that this is a three big blind. Is that this person's standard open raise size? Uh, is 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 it maybe significant that they chose a three big blind raise size and not a smaller raise size? Um, I, I would certainly consider those factors. Yeah, I agree. The flop comes queen of clubs, queen of diamonds, three of hearts. So there's now 7.5 big blinds in the pot and 16 big blinds in our hero stacks. So SPR is right around two. I know I was saying that flopping a pair of threes wasn't going to do a lot of work for us. This is one of the best possible flops. for If, if you're going to make a pair of threes, this is how you want to do it. Bottom pair with a backdoor flush draw, uh, two queens on the board, our hero checks, uh, which I think is definitely correct. And now the villain just shoves for a little over twice the pot. <laughs> so weird. So weird. Yeah, I have no idea. It's not even a draw on the board. I can put them on. I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah. Eric says he certainly has any pair less than a queen and a bunch of overcard slash backdoor straight flush draw combos like Jack 10 suited. Um, I, I feel a little uncomfortable saying certainly because I don't think he should have anything. Like <laughs> this, right. this is not a play <laughs> that he should ever make. And so it's hard to say like what kind of hand is most likely to, to make this mistake. Um, I don't really see the appeal. I can kind of understand why someone would shove with something like pocket sixes. They're just like, oh, I want to get it all in and maximize. I mean, it's, it's the wrong way to think about it, but I can kind of understand why someone might do it. I, I don't really understand why someone would shove like Jack 10 with a backdoor flush draw. I think it's just the the, the worst case scenarios for you are really, really bad. <laughs> yeah. If they do have sixes and you know you get it in behind here, 
at this stage of the tournament, that's a really bad outcome. And then the so-called best case scenarios where they have something like Jack 10 with a backdoor flush draw, you're not doing that well. I mean, they can hit the Jack, they can hit the 10, they can hit the backdoor flush or straight. They can also run out a pair. Like if the board runs out eight, eight, you lose. Um, So there are a lot it's just, it's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. You're never a big favorite against anything. I mean, if, if they could be jamming like five, three here, then Colin gets more appealing. I kind of doubt they're opening that from, from the cutoff. So I, yeah, honestly, I, I could still see folding this. I know it seems weird. Like, why'd you call with this preflop to just fold when you get like the best possible flop? Well, I mean, a, I was not fully on board with <laughs> calling preflop, yeah. but also I was not expecting this like two X pot shove and Eric does some math here and, and kind of says, I've probably got something like 25% equity, which is not a whole lot more than you would need to call a two X pot shove, but also, you know, w- w- there's, there's an equity real or not equity realization, but there's an ICM um, risk premium. That's what it's called. Right. So, you know, you, you can't just look at your pot odds be, like because of ICM, you need more equity than what your pot odds would, would generally dictate. So I think that if you determine that you have 25% equity here, um, I still think folding might be correct. Yeah. It's funny that he says I got around 25% equity against his pair hands. And he says that thinking that that's enough to call like a decent amount. But then he says, I'm well ahead, well ahead of hands like ace, jack, jack, 10 and 10, nine. And he doesn't say how far ahead he is. Uh, uh, those hands probably have around 25% equity with you. And that's considered well ahead when you're on the good side of it. But when you're on the uh, on the other side of it, it feels like, you know, 25 is enough. <laughs> yeah. <the regular. laughs> yeah. So it, it sounds like this is like some, you know, natural human thinking of like rationalizing reasons to call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is very dangerous in high ICM situations. Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's, it's, this is kind of a mindset that you have to be in before the hand starts. Is you just need to be in a defensive place of like my. It's not quite your number one goal, but it's it's of utmost importance to avoid losing the last of your chips and avoid ending up in spots like this one where you have to make a. Either either make a big call that puts your survival at risk, or fold away a lot of equity. You know, it's I, I agree that folding doesn't feel good here, and I I do think it's again like kind of a close decision. And this is part of why you don't want to call pre flop because you could end up in this sort of spot. Like this is what equity underrealization feels like, where you even it doesn't seem like that bad of a spot, but calling is still you know arguably worse or not that much better than folding. And that means that there's not a lot of EV there, even on a very good flop for you. And then you recognize many flops are not very good for you. And this is why pre-flop is, is sort of dicey. Exactly. As it turns out, the villain did end up having tens, which I think is a, a bonkers hand to play this way, but I think any hand is bonkers to play this <laughs> way. So, um, yeah, I, I think Eric did not win this one. So sorry about that, buddy. That's not being being glib, by the way. I do actually know Eric. He is my buddy. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, maybe um, Daniel will be a new buddy. Uh, so, uh, what what is his? What's the details of his hand? Okay, Daniel played this hand in a one-three cash game at the National Harbor, another Maryland area casino. This begins with an under the gun plus one limp. The hijack raises to $15 and the hero is on the button with black sixes. Uh, The effective stack here is about $400. First question, is this a call? 
Um, it strikes me as one of these um, hands that you probably uh, that I would not be shocked to see wouldn't be a call and uh, um, like on Floptimal or something like that. But um, I think in a soft one three game, um, you, know, you can probably get away with calling this on the button for sure, given these stacks that uh, these um, stack depths. Yeah, I agree. I, the button part is important. I, I think where people really go wrong is if there's a huge difference between if this action was like under the gun, one limps under the gun, two raises, and you're in the low jack. That's a much scarier place to call with these sixes because you still have a bunch of people behind you who might squeeze or even just like overcall behind you and take equity away from you. When you already have the button, now there's only two people left. You know you're going to be last act uh, after the flop. This is a much more appealing call. So yeah, I'm, I'm fully on board with this. I think where, where people overvalue the small pairs is when they're in early position, both opening with them and especially calling raises with them in early position is, is a lot more dangerous than when you have the button. Yes. The limper also calls. So we go to the flop three ways with uh, $40 in the pot. And the effective stack again is around 400. So the SPR is like nine to 10. The flop is jack eight, six, all hearts. So here are flops bottom set on a monotone board. Now the limper, the person who limp called, leads out for $25 into this $40 pot and the hijack raises to $75. Uh, you know what? Uh, this is where I would get completely exploitable and out of line and just assume that this hijack raiser has no worse than like an overpair. And that he's not good enough to fold it. So I would just jam here. Uh, and I know that's crazy, but yeah, I basically, so we, of course, we're going to run into eights and jacks sometimes. Um, the, the the guy who's leading here, in, in my experience, these players just have like a jack so often. And I don't think there's much we can do to like win a big pot from that player once, once hijack raises and we call. I mean, I guess they'll call again with something like Jack 10 or Queen Jack, but um, they might get spooked. I would in their shoes if I'm like leading out with a Jack, which I would never do. I would get spooked when there's a raise. And now, you know, this player has decided his hand is good enough to just cold call this raise. Uh, I'm not happy with, you know, most of the Jack X hands. But I mean, unless you have a heart and then that you're not doing that well against that hand. Oh, anyway. wait a minute, wait a minute. All hearts, all hearts. So there's not just the um the um sets that we're afraid of here. There's also flushes. Yeah, okay, yeah, I missed that part. Uh actually this is this is tougher now without it. So I'll say this. If this I mean, is I was one, I was like, oh, am I so far <laughs> off here? Like <laughs> I'll put it this way. If this is a monotone board, I'm I'm sorry, a two-tone board or a rainbow board. I'm putting this um, hijack razor on an overpair and I'm just jamming to, you know, get max value from that and sacrificing any value I could have got from like Jack 10 that this other guy has. But with the flush draw out there, uh, with, the, with the flush being possible, I'm not folding. I, I guess I call. I mean, it doesn't feel great, but. I call. Yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at. Like, so I I think I'm I'm glad that we're on the same page about this. Yeah. I I do actually think people will find a fold if they have like black kings and you just shove here for four hundred. I, yeah. I, I mean, not everyone will, but I think plenty of people can find that fold. And against red kings, you're not in such great shape. I mean, you're ahead, but if they have twelve outs. I mean, you're right. 
it's not that great to get it in against them for that being like a best case scenario of like, oh, I hope they have Red Kings. Right. Um, you know, getting in and against flushes is not terrible either. Like you do have a fair number of outs against flushes. The uh, the biggest risk, as you kind of hinted at, is running into higher sets. That's not terribly likely, especially like under the gun plus one is not particularly likely to have a, a higher set. So I, I think the, as long as there's not a huge risk of running into higher sets, I think it's relatively safe to call. Um, you know, we'll be folding if a fourth heart comes down. It's really nice to have position here yeah. because we're going to get to see what happens if if there's like more strong betting on the turn. I could even say folding unimproved on the turn, but by calling, we have we give ourselves a chance to pair the board and we give ourselves a chance to see what everyone else does. If they checked us, then I think we can feel pretty good about value betting. If they show a lot of strength, we could end up folding. And again, like this is just why position is so valuable, especially in multi-way pots, is you don't necessarily need a full plan. When you, I mean, you want to have ideas of different things that could happen, but I'm not necessarily calling to get it in on safe turns or not get it in on safe turns. I'm calling expecting to have a lot more information before I have to make that decision. Yeah. Uh, speaking of a lot more information, uh, we got a little bit of a read here. So the limper who let out um, is a loose passive player, um, both pre-flop and post-flop. And the hijack who raised that lead is generally loose and passive pre-flop, but post-flop, he's been loose and aggressive, but only when he has the betting lead and passive otherwise. So if I'm reading this correctly, what we also have here is two players who are generally passive in this scenario, both being aggressive. Does that change your thoughts on if we should continue to this raise at all? It is worrisome. Um, I do. I mean, it's... I don't have as much of a strong sense of like people's defaults on monotone boards. Yeah. I think that there are some players who overvalue hands or overvalue protection. And like you were saying, you know, people just have a jack and they think, oh, I need to like bet this to protect it or they have an overpair and they feel like they need to bet. They end up playing those hands too aggressively, not as a bluff, but just sort of overvaluing a hand, a board on overvaluing a pair on a board on which a pair is not that strong of a hand. Right. Uh, and then there's other players who are just like terrified that there's three hearts on the board. I also think a lot of people don't just like lead out when they flop a flush. Like I think they, they try to get a little trickier and like check raise or something. So I, I do think sometimes people are actually more likely to be aggressive with those like mediumish hands. They feel like they need to protect more so than like really strong hands where they'll try to be a little bit trappier. So I'm not saying I'd be like shocked to see a flush, but I don't think it's like a guarantee that someone currently has a flush. Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't be um, shocked if the guy who is leading um, the UTG limper, um, if he, I wouldn't be shocked if he didn't have a flush, but the razor, considering that he's described as um, passive, at least in this scenario, if I'm putting a, a passive player um, in that spot and they raise after being led into on a monotone board, I think they have a lot of flushes in their range there. Because like if they don't have a flush, they're probably raising some one pair hand or like some flush draw. And I don't think passive players do that as often, especially when they got led into here. Yeah, so I'm not uh, basically what I'm saying is I don't think we're in great shape versus the hijacks range. But given the price, maybe we don't need to be in great shape to at least call. But we definitely don't want to raise. Uh, I just don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's also kind of important that the hijack is not going to have the option to raise again. 
um, you know, under the gun plus one is the, like, that would be the worst case scenario if we call here and then under the gun one shoves. <laughs> yeah. So if, if we think that they're less likely to have a flush, that's a, that's a big relief because that means that we will at least get to see the turn card if, if we call here. Right. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I think I do like calling, but I don't feel that strongly about it. I, I do see here that our hero ended up folding. And the main thing I'll say is that I think it's very good that the hero is willing to make this fold. Uh, this shows it shows good discipline. It shows good hand reading to like flop a set and fold without putting a penny into the pot. I would much rather see you on like the pendulum swinging too far in this direction rather than, in fact, he even quotes you on the better yeah. to make a bad fold than a bad call thing. Um, you know, I, I think, it's it's much easier to fall into the trap of just sort of oh I have a set what can I do, uh, so I I think it speaks very well to your uh, ability and potential as as a poker player that you're able to just fold this without without uh, putting a single dollar in at post swap. Yeah, it, it comes down to um, you're not sure, and when you're not sure, I think it's always safer. Like if this is a line I got from um, from Alice Fitzgerald, uh, when in doubt fold. It's like if you don't like it, this, like we both are more experienced and even we're like not 100 percent sure what to do here. So with your, you know, uh, less experience, uh, it might just be safer for you to fully, even if this is a marginally good call. That's right. All right. Thank you, Daniel, right. for writing. Uh, Chris played this hand in a 2-3 cash game at the Harvey's Lake Tahoe during the WSIP circuit event. We are nine-handed, 90 big blinds, $270 effective. The villain is in the low jack. Uh, under the gun limps, under the gun one limps. The villain limps in the low jack. The small blind completes. And our hero is in the big blind with ace-king offsuit. So there's a one, two, three limpers in the field plus the small blind. Hero raises to 20. Is that big enough? Uh... I'm going to say no, uh, especially in the 2-3 cash game. I'm probably going at least uh, like double that. Uh, nah, I'm, I'm going to say like, honestly, man, I don't know, man, because the cash game raise the opening size is so <laughs> weird. I feel like we got to go like 30 to 40, but I don't know exactly where to fall in that range. I was thinking 25 to 30. There's there's not a science behind this. Um, but I, I think it's good that our heroes on the bill. Like sometimes people race like 10 or 15 here, which is not nearly big enough. So I think if, if anything, you can like it's just, it's really hard to raise too much in, in this spot. Right. 20 probably seems like a big raise. It's like you know, almost seven big blinds. But um, yeah, I, I would not bat an eye if, if you made it 30. Right, right. Uh as it turns out, only the villain who limped in the low jack behind two other people calls so that's pretty good news we yeah. do go heads up to the pot with some dead money in the pot yeah the fact that we only got one caller indicates this was a decent decent raise size for this game and there's a lot of there's a lot of games where like everybody was like oh pot sweetener and they were all just <laughs> so uh it seems like our hero here is tuned in to the game he's in yeah 52 dollars in the pot Hero is heads up holding ace king out of position against the player who overlimped and called a raise pre-flop. And the flop is king of spades, seven of diamonds, four of diamonds. Hero is first to act. <laughs> I was just looking at this action that is is this is awesome. I would do basically what Hero did here, which is assume the guy who limped and um Basically, a limp is a call, and then there was a raise, and he called again. So this is a guy who likes calling. 
and I have a value hand against this sort of player, I'm putting a lot of chips in. So my thought process here would be to bump it probably around pot. But um, this time Hero decided to go over the pot. So there's 52 in the middle. He bet 75. I don't know if I would have gotten that crazy, but I actually don't hate it. Uh, but what I really don't want to see here is some like third pot bet uh, uh, against this particular player type. So I like a big bet. Um, this big, I'm unsure. Yeah, I mean, I think th- this kind of player, and I, I think what you're driving at with the big bet is this kind of player tends to be sort of inelastic, where it's just they either like the hand or they don't. If they don't like it, they're not giving you action for twenty dollars anyway. And if they do like it, like if they have a, a dominated top pair or they have a flush draw or a straight draw or whatever, they'll probably be willing to call it a big bet. Now, I, I do think sometimes when you bet like an amount that's huge, you might accidentally sort of get them to become elastic or sort of like maybe this is an amount where they will bat an eye. So that that's the key is you, you don't want to, um, how do you put it? You don't want to turn a bad player into a thinking player. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I would be a little wary of betting quite this much because it, it might actually cause them to sit up and think about what you have. So I think you want to bet an amount that feels normal to them. What I really want to emphasize is you should want action here. You have an extremely strong hand against a loose and passive player. Uh, you should be, your objective should be to get all the money in. And I'm going to feel better about that if I'm the one doing the betting. But regardless, my objective is to get all the money in. I'm not betting here to take the pot down or because I want my opponent to fold, which is something that, that Chris says later that he, he overbet thinking that because he has a tight image, he says he's a 70 plus year old man, um, you can just get folds and take the pot down on the flop. And that's, I mean, I don't want to tell you what you should want, but like from an EV perspective, that's not what you should want. You have a very strong mm-hmm. hand here and your goal should not be win the money that's already in the pot. That money basically belongs to you already. When you flop a hand this strong, you don't need to take the pot down now. The pot is yours. Your objective is to make the pot larger because you have a very large, you have a very strong hand and you are a big favorite to win the pot. Right. Because what ends up happening, so here are bets to $75 and then villain shoves for 250 total. So, you know, another uh, 175 on top and the hero ends up folding. And this, I think, is just sort of, I, I can kind of understand the logic of it. We were like, well, I screamed that I had a huge hand and he's going all in anyway. And my solution to that would be if if you think that overbetting the pot is screaming that you have a huge hand, then don't overbet the pot. Like, you don't want to tell your opponent you have a huge hand. So you should bet an amount where it's not going to be obvious that you have a huge hand so that they will give you action with worse. I don't know if that's true in this. Like, okay, the way I read that is it's okay to scream that you have a huge hand if they're going to still call with a second best hand. And, that, and that's basically what you said is that, you know, if doing that is going to like prevent you from getting called by worse, then you don't want to do it. But I don't know if that's necessarily what's happening here. Like, I think if this guy has King Queen, he's calling. Um, even versus the overbet, I would assume. And so my only concern is we don't need to overbet to get stacks in against King Queen. So I would have gone big. I basically would have like bet, you know, just under pot on three streets. Um, but given that we did overbet and we did scream strength and, um, the guy still doesn't care. And also there's an extra piece of information here. Hero says he's 74 years old and has an OMC image. Like if I'm jamming over that profile, who's just overbet the pot here, 
I might not even have bottom set. Like I have like, I got like sevens. I got like slow play Kings or something like, like, I don't think the guy who's jamming here is, is um, like, to me, the question is how often does he have, does he have ace King himself here? Like, I feel like if we call this jam, we're calling the top. I guess the draws out there too, but yeah, I think people uh, have shoved in that flush draw. People have shoved King X a diamond. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so the, the the reason, like, I I agree that we kind of were thinking that this player was maybe not. So I, I I don't I can't really square the 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 only reason that you would fold this right is is if you believe that the villain has up on your sign of strength. So when we say like, I don't mind screaming that I'm strong by just bending huge on the flop, what we're really saying is that we don't expect the opponent to interpret or act on that information. So if you're then folding to the shove, you're saying, I do think that he understood and acted on that information. And that's a problem. So you can scream that you're strong if you think your opponent's not going to listen. It doesn't make sense to me to like scream that you're strong and then expect that your opponent will understand that and and that you don't want to put stacks in here. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's just there's there's just no need for the. I mean, I, I think just fundamentally the idea of I'm overbetting in order to take the pot down is just the wrong way to be thinking about this. When when you flop a big hand, you want to be thinking about getting called by hands that are worse than yours, not trying to like lock up a win. Yeah, yeah. If I'm overbetting here, which I'm not, like I'm I'm if I'm potting here, which I basically would, is to you know, get the max from this guy's calling hands. And then if he then then decides to raise, then I was like, okay, he doesn't have on his calling hands. What does his raising hands looks like look like? And I agree with this um board containing a flush draw that, you know, that's gonna make up a decent percentage of his range. But if this was like a rainbow board, then I think I'm more on board with this full um, you know, um if, if we're going like pot and the guy jammed over that on a rainbow board. Given given hero's image here. Uh, but yeah, in this case, with the flush draw being available and with everything you just said, um, I do think uh, this is kind of a crying call for me, at least. I'm not loving it. We don't have results, so we'll never know. But thank you, Chris, for writing. Next up, we have... Andy and Andy has a theory question. So Andy asks, how does being very short in the tournament impact a big calling range? For example, say you have eight to 10 big, eight to 10 big blinds and are facing a min raise in the big blind with a somewhat trashy hand. Obviously we should be jamming very wide. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> uh, if with a, Oh, well, I guess with, well, he talked about with a trashy hand. I was like, you definitely don't want to be jamming a trashy hand with eight big blinds. Um, but maybe he just means in general. Um, obviously, we should be jamming very wide uh, with the top of our range. But uh, do we call with marginal hands? Knowing uh, we're getting a great price that we can stack off with any pair so we can realize our equity fairly well. Or are we playing more shove or fold because even the one big blind call is a big percentage of our stack? What are your thoughts on this? I think Andy's thinking about it very well already. And I think he's, you know, kind of summarized the two 
sides of this this argument. I think the first side is correct. Um, you you are getting a very good price. You are going to be able to realize your equity fairly well. You should, in fact, be folding less off of a short stack than you would off of a large stack. Uh, it is also generally true that more hands will be strong enough to just get them all in pre-flop, especially, I mean, you're not going to have a lot of fold equity with eight or 10 big blinds. You might have a little bit. So, you know, your your threshold for getting it all in pre-flop is lower when you have eight or 10 blinds than when you have 20 or 25, just because the risk to reward ratio is, is different. But there are still many hands that are not good enough to shove pre-flop that that are good enough to call at getting a very good price. And then, yeah, it is unfortunate to lose a big percentage of your stack, but also like the money in the pot is a big percentage of your stack mm -hmm. and winning that is, is very good. So you really do, you do want to look at this as an opportunity, like nothing great happens when you have eight big blinds, you're probably not going to win the tournament. So I know it feels bad to like call and then lose another big blind, but this, I mean, having eight big blinds is already a bad situation to be in. And what you want is to, take profitable opportunities when they arise. And this is a profitable opportunity. And if you do lose, um, yeah, you lost a big blind, but you did save seven big blinds compared to if you had shoved pre-flop and then gotten a really bad flop. So a great example, like there are many hands, there are even some hands that have like decent pre-flop equity, something like 10-8 um, suited, like against the button opening range, 10-8 suited might be good enough where it would be plus EV to shove it. If you have a little bit of fold equity and you're going to have like decent equity when you're called, there could be a hand like that that like would be plus EV to shove. If your only options were shove or fold, you might be better off shoving than folding. Um, but because calling is an option, 10-8 is a good example of a hand that gets a lot of valuable information from seeing the flop. There are flops where you can look and say, okay, 10 8 suited is a pretty decent hand here. I'm, I'll be happy to put the rest of my ships in, or at least willing to put the rest of my ships in. And then there are flops where you're like, oh, that's a disaster. And then you're happy that you don't have 10 big blinds sitting out there when that flop comes down. So you want to think of it as an opportunity to see the flop before you commit your most valuable chips, which are the last of your chips. Not every hand benefits from this. If you have like a six offsuit, that's another hand where, I mean, maybe you're not thrilled to get called when you shove pre-flop, but you're not going to be in terrible shape. Uh, and that's not a hand that gets such useful information from saying the flop. Even when you don't flop a pair, there's still a chance that ace high is good or your ace is live. There aren't as many flops that are just like a nightmare for a six. Um, pocket, you know, small pocket pairs fall in this category, pocket fours. You know, they're against a wide range, you can never be sure that your opponent flopped a pair. But you can never feel that good about putting the money in with fours after the flop unless you make a set because there's always lots of bigger cards on the board. So like hands like fours and a six offsuit, they really benefit a lot from getting all in pre-flop and guaranteeing that they realize 100% of their equity. Then, but the the, the more like medium-ish suited, connected kinds of hands where you're going to get a lot of information from saying the flop, those are the ones that benefit from calling, and then you get to make a decision of whether to stack off on, on any given flop with that extra piece of information. Exactly. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Max played this uh, hand in a $230 survivor tournament Ooh. at the Borgata. Uh, so this is a format where the final nine players all get $2,000. No deals or chops uh, can be made before the money. So this is essentially a satellite. Yes. It's a satellite that pays out in cash rather than a, a seat to some bigger tournament, but strategically it is, it is exactly a satellite, which means that there is no prize for accumulating chips beyond what you need to get into the final nine. 
I, I think the way you would put this, Carlos, is the winner really is the player who squeaks in with like half a big blind. <laughs> that that person didn't, they, they had no waste. They, they they didn't accumulate any chips that they didn't need. Yes, that person gets a trophy and the chip leader when the thing over, when the thing is over, min cashed. Uh, Hero has 60K nearing the end of the 2K, 4K level. So currently 15 big blinds, soon to be 12 big blinds. Uh, Under the Gun with a medium stack opens to 10K, two and a half big blinds. Under the Gun plus one, three bets off of a 60 big blind stack. And our hero is in the small blind. And his question was, you know, what what's the calling range here? Uh, and is it relevant that this is a turbo? Uh, should should we be calling wider because this is a turbo? Um so essentially we're looking at we've got we've got a raise to two and a half blinds from middle position, which is already somewhat strong. Uh, we've got a shove for 15 big blinds. We're covered. We're in the small blind. There's 15 players left. Nine are going to make the money. So like, what are some of the worst hands that you would call with here? Um, do we know where our stack is relative to the other stacks? Doesn't seem like it. And yeah, that is a very important piece of information. Yeah. So like an indispensable piece. Of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I will say is uh, multi-way pots are absolute death when it comes to these sort of tournaments, um, especially as you get closer to, um, you know, having a stack that is safe enough to get to see, even if you don't have an, uh, enough chips right now like the moment you get more than like half the chips you need um well maybe i should say that let's say once you get to around like 75 percent of the chips you need you are looking more to chip up by jamming yourself as opposed to calling because if you call you um only have one way to win and then when you do win you win more than what you need so like if you got 75 percent of what you need and you call and you're lucky enough to hold um, you go to 150% of what you need. And now that 50% is like risk you've taken on that you are not going to get compensated for. So it really matters what the target stack size is in this thing and uh, how close we are to it relative to the other um, stacks at the table. So if you are shorter than, you know, um, if you have less than 50% of the um, stack size that you need, your calling range here is probably going to be something like Kings plus Queens plus maybe uh, ace King would not be a call here. I don't believe. Um, so basically you need a big pair. And if you have like, say 75% of the um, chips you need, maybe you don't even fall. Maybe you don't even call Kings here. Um, and, and if you have like hundred percent of the chips you need, you don't even call aces here. So without knowing the stack sizes, that's like the best general answer I can give. I would refer um, anyone who's listening to the um, Chip Race um, YouTube page. There's a, 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 if you like search my name on there uh, or like, can you make, I think it's called a, can you make one of the biggest folds in poker? Like I discussed the hand with Dara and um, David Lappin. Uh, where I was in a similar situation in a satellite where there was a multi-way pot and I had Kings and we determined that not only was uh, Kings a foe there, that I should also um, foe aces. But in that case, we're more like two off the money as opposed to here. It's like still six off. So I think really the, the most important strategic information you're giving Max is that uh, they need to be paying attention 
Yes. So I'm assuming if they didn't share this with us, it probably was not central to their decision making in, in this spot. And it, it absolutely should have been. So you want to be aware with only 15 people left. This is realistic. I mean, it can be tricky if you're playing like a huge mega satellite where like 60 people are going to cash. It can be hard to get a sense of like what everyone's stack size looks like with 15 people left. Like half the people in the tournament are at your table and yeah. half are at one other table. So like you can kind of look around and have a general idea of like how many short stacks are there, how many huge stacks are there. You, you want to like ballpark what is your chance of getting into the, the making the money without taking a risk here? And then the better your chances are, the less risk you want to take. Um, I agree. This is like a pretty risky spot because you don't. There's no fold equity. It's like you have to go to showdown. Showdowns are super risky. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's what we can tell you here. It's like they're super risky, and they're even more risky in multi-way pots because even with aces in a multi-way pot. Uh, oftentimes you're only going to be like a 60% favorite, maybe 65. Yeah. I mean, I it's not terribly like this is going to end up being multi-way, right? Like if our hero calls here, probably the original razor doesn't call that way. Oh, but you're right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, some people like, <laughs> so it is entirely possible that the under the gun player is, is bad and doesn't understand that they shouldn't call that often in this spot. And like they can, because, because this is a, a satellite situation they can make a bad call that is bad for them and you yeah and they will transfer a lot of ev to other players who are not involved in, in this hand uh so you know their mistake is not necessarily your gain the way it would be in a, in a normal poker situation yeah it's very funny that this comes up because i was actually on the bubble of a 580 580 mega at the wsop here uh, a couple of days ago and ended up busting in a spot where that exact same thing happened where someone made one of these calls that would be absolutely normal in a tournament but if you understand satellite strategy it turned out to be a bad call that kind of like you know screw both of us uh now in this case, I was the one who uh, did not um, win the hand, which is why I remember it. Uh, but yeah, in the long run, that call definitely screws both of us. So uh, yeah. Uh, also, Max here says that he he had ace-queen and folded, which is a good fold. And he says that ace-jack was a fairly easy fold and ace-king is an obvious call. Um, I think that's something he should... Um, look into whether or not ace king is obvious call i could be wrong by saying it's an obvious fold because i'm thinking that this was a you know basically going to be a three-way all-in pot so if the first guy jammed and the second guy called then you definitely don't want to call ace king but if this first guy if you expect to have a decent amount of fold equity uh from this first player then maybe ace king um becomes a call but i'm, I'm very unsure there so when he says this an obvious call that's something that you know maybe he and i both need to look into thank you max for writing our next question comes from joe joe uh play this it looks like in a two five cash game i'm gonna guess from the stack sizes here yeah in middle position raises to twenty dollars the cutoff calls and the small blind jams all in for 105 um, he had just lost most of his chips to our hero. Uh, so Joe says this raise <laughs> is a screw it jam. Uh, and hero is in the big blind with pocket aces. So uh, with the middle position player, the original razor, it sounds like hero has a big stack here. So the effective stacks are different. A hero, I think, covers everyone in this hand. So there's the one person who's already in for 105. The middle position, uh, who opened for 20, has 500 total. And then the cutoff, who called the 20, has 800. 
total. And Hero covers both of them. Here's in the big blind with pocket aces. So the question is, first off, I would take shoving off the table. I think there's absolutely no reason to do that. The question is, are you better off calling or making a small raise? Definitely call here. Like this is such a great spot to call. Um, and his reasons for considering call, he says, do we want to call and encourage a call from dominated hands with a hand this strong? Um, I don't think our correspondent here is um, also considering the fact that everybody else knows that this looks like a screw it jam. So <laughs> we might not get just a call. Maybe yeah. we get a an ISO jam if we flat here. So this is like the most fist pump flat of all time. Like when this scenario happens and then you look down and see aces, it's like the sky just opens, man. Just call. <laughs> yeah, I fully agree. I, I think if you have like, there, I, I could see reasons to make a small raise with like ace king or pocket tens or something where you do value the fold equity a little bit more. But with aces, it's just like, like what hand do you want them to fold? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even, even someone who's like set mining, you know, if cutoff has like pocket sixes, it's going to cost them $80 to see the flop. I don't think it's a total lock that they stack you, but maybe it is, you know, even, even if they do, like they're, they're going to stack you one time out of 10, that's barely enough to make calling with sixes profitable. And there's plenty of other hands that are not sixes that you really want them in there with. So you're not giving up very much the times you let them make like a slightly profitable call with, with a small pair to set mine. And every other hand is a hand that you're happy to get a call from. Exactly. And like, I think the most important thing, as you said, Carla, is you might be able to induce shoves from people who think that they can trap your dead money in there. Someone has ace queen or pocket tens or something, and they're like, oh, that, that short stack could have anything. And then this guy just called. Let me see if I can just like, you know, isolate the short stack and shove my ace queen. You really want to encourage that kind of thing. Yeah. Honestly, if I'm in there with, you know, ace queen or tens, that's exactly what I would do. And in this case, hero chose to min raise the 200. And I honestly would just probably fold those hands versus this action. So. Yeah, and, and everyone else did fold. So for all we know, they did have uh, kings and queens and they just got away. Yeah, so, you know, our correspondent was a little bit concerned about, you know, them overcalling with some of those hands. And when, like you said, Andrew, you don't even mind them overcalling when you have aces. Like you downright welcome it when, with a hand like ace-queen. But you also run the risk of like letting them get away from those hands that would have considered putting all the chips in if you had just called. So, yeah, tough lesson, but one that, you know, when there's a miracle situation <laughs> comes up for you again in the future, <laughs> you'll be better prepared for it next time. Yes. Thank you, Joe, for writing. All right. We're going to try to squeeze in one more here from Gary. Gary played this hand in a $1,400 tournament at the bike. In the money with about 70 players left, no significant payout jumps soon. Blinds are 25-50K. Hero has 17 bigs on the button and is dealt 9-7 of spades. I think if you were to ask a solver, this hand does some open limping, um, but I think you're probably going to deal with people who don't throw that as aggressively as they should from the blinds. So I would say go ahead and raise it. I don't want to fold this on the button, even with a kind of short stack. Uh, Hero does indeed raise. Are we on the same page about this so far? Yes. Uh, Hero min raises, which looks good. And the big blind calls. Uh, Gary says that this player is a tourney regular. He's played with her once and she seems ABC slash solid. 
The flop is eight of diamonds, five of diamonds, three of clubs. Our hero again has nine, seven of spades. Big blind checks. What are we doing now? This is interesting because uh, so hero decides to check here and that kind of um, made me think about, you know, so a lesson that I learned from these sort of stack sizes is you do want to be careful about c-betting too often when your opponent can just like jam over your c-bet and deny your equity with a hand that you know has a uh, pretty decent equity or like that hand that really wants to see the turn card and so i usually think about you know um hands that have like two backdoor draws so like let's say if i have something like 10 9 of clubs here where I got that was exactly the example. <laughs> yeah, where I got the overcards, I got you know, three to the straight, three to the flush. Like, I really would hate bet folding that hand, so I would check it back. This gutter with one over feels a little bit like that, but not quite the same. So, I really don't know. I can see why he checked back here, and I honestly just don't know the answer as to. Uh, whether or not this hand is uh, uh, worth checking back here. Good news is it's probably a mix. Yes. Most hands are on the flop, which doesn't actually tell you much. I think the more useful thing is to understand what could make betting better than checking and vice versa. So as you correctly pointed out, Carlos, the, the big risk of betting is getting raised. If you bet and your opponent calls, I mean, it's not what you're hoping for, but that's not at all a bad outcome. You still get to see the turn card. You still have a chance of improving your hand. All of your outs are potentially alive. Even hitting the seven could very easily give you the best hand. You might be able to barrel the turn. Lots of good things can happen if your opponent calls. So like, I mean, of course you're hoping for folds, but this is a good hand to bet in a world where your opponent is not allowed to raise. If your opponent were only allowed to raise, and if their choices were just uh, fold or raise, this would be a terrible hand to bet. Uh, it's not good enough to stack off to, to a raise. I mean, if it's a small raise, you can call it, but to a shove, you know, it's not going to be good enough to stack off. And um, if they fold, it doesn't matter what you had. So you'd rather bet a, a worse hand than this. And that's kind of how you, that's how we arrive at an equilibrium where you end up being indifferent is your opponent should respond with a mix of calls and raises such that like, sometimes you're happy you bet the nine, seven and not some worse hand because you got called and now you, you still have a, chance of, of winning on the turn. Other times you're unhappy about the nine seven because your opponent raised and now you wish you had better worse hand. Um, so really the question you want to ask yourself is, do you think your opponent is going to um, respond mostly by calling or mostly by shoving when they don't fold? If they fold, your cards don't matter. So we're talking about the times that they don't fold. Are they going to mostly call or mostly shove? Just from his description of this person, um, it kind of sounds like she might do more calling than shoving. Uh, he calls her like ABC slash solid. Um, that kind of makes me want to make a, a small. I think the other thing you can do if you if your bet is really small, there's less incentive for her to shove. You know, if if she probably calls a little bit wider than if you make a large size, but she also probably raises less. The bigger you bet, the more people feel like they have to have a, a shove or fold response when they're out of position. So you can bet something, and this is often correct when you're, when you're, you see betting shallow, um, you can see that something like a quarter pot or one third pot, and then your opponent is less likely to shove. And also you lose less if they do shove. Yeah. And you know, another question I would be curious about here is, you know, what's the stack size of this opponent? 
because something I used to do against um, passive players, he didn't say this player was passive, but uh, most players are, especially ones that are described as ABC. If they have a stack size, like roughly similar to mine or like not much more than mine, I, I used to um, bet on these sort of boards because they generally call with like, you know, a pair or draw. And then when the overcards come, that range is kind of like weakened and I can like, you know, rep that overcard on like turn the river and the river bet is significant enough versus a stack size similar to mine that, you know, they tend to not call for that much of their stack with like second pair or or third pair, whatever they ends up being on the river in most cases. And you're generally going to get an overcard when the board is AI um, on the turn of the river. If you don't hit your hand yourself, because um, you got, you know, a couple of cards you can hit as well. Um, but that doesn't matter if this person has like 200 big blinds, <laughs> like they're just going to flick it in <laughs> on the river. So I, that's another question I would have bit here. But yeah, I think you make a very good observation that, you know, this person described as ABC uh, solid player, she's going to be less likely to um, check raise uh, um, light uh, or even just with, you know, a hand that's supposed to check raise something like probably nine, eight is supposed to check raise. But um ABC players might call with their hand and gives you an opportunity to um, bluff them off of it later. So, yeah, that's going to really determine uh, what I choose to do here. Yeah. And I'll say one other thing, which is that you know, we've talked a lot about this exact hand of, of nine, seven. The hands that most like to check this flop are like a jack where you value the fold. So, I mean, nine, seven. You, you getting a fold is really, really nice when right. you have nine eye. Like you're you're gaining a lot from folds. So even though you are there's a potential liability of, of getting raised and that, that is a downside, there's also a lot of upside to betting in, in the form of getting folds. For ace jack, I mean it's still nice if you bet in your opponent fold, but what you're really finding out when you bet with ace jack was that you had the best hand anyway. Right. If, if you bet in your opponent folds. So part of the relief of getting the fold, I mean, some of it comes from denying them equity. Like sometimes they fold, uh, I don't know, King nine or something that had like 25% equity against you. But a lot of times the reason why their fold feels good is not because you gained more money from them folding. It's because you found out that you already had the best hand. And so the upside of betting for ace jack is a lot less. And the downside is the same. Like getting you're you're getting blown off of at least as much equity when you have ace jack because with ace jack you don't even have to improve your hand. Sometimes mm. you just already had the best hand. So getting raised off of the best hand is very expensive. So like those hands that, that can't make better hands fold, those are the hands that really like checking behind. And this dovetails with the thing that you were talking about of you know, sometimes you check behind here with nine seven and then an overcard comes on a later street. Because you have all that like ace jack, king queen kind of stuff in your check back range, it's nice to have a nine seven that enables you to rep those. Like those are legitimately very good cards for you. You are going to have a lot of value hands. And so even if betting a nine seven is profitable on the flop, which it surely is, the question is, is it more profitable to check the flop, preserve your equity? You certainly want to bluff at some point. You're not just going to check nine high all the way to showdown, but there is an option, check the flop off the turn check both the river those are all viable options yes uh, our hero does check behind the flop the turn is the deuce of hearts and now the villain bets 100k so 275k in the pot um villain bets 100k i don't think we can very credibly raise at this point i mean there's a couple of strong hands we could have but you know you correctly pointed out like most of the time when we check behind the flop the turn is going to be an overcard and that's going to be good for us 
Unfortunately, this was not one of those times. <laughs> um, this is one of the less good turn cards we could have asked for because it doesn't do anything to improve our checkback range. And that means we're just not going to be able to get too aggressive here. I still think we have um, all of our outs are quite possibly live. We're still going to have some bluffing opportunities on the river. So I do think I would call this. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, this bet size is probably too small from her. From her. So it allows us to continue more often. I think generally, uh, if you put this hand in a solver, it likes more around like two thirds here. And I think versus that, we're in kind of a tough spot. We may be forced to fold, but uh, I've seen solvers call even that bet size with some pretty surprising hands. But for for this size, I do think we, we have to call. Our hero does call. And the river brings an offsuit jack. So the final board is eight of diamonds, five of diamonds, three of clubs, deuce of hearts, jack of clubs. The flush draw misses. The villain checks. So we had talked about bluffing on a line where the villain keeps checking to us. How do we feel about bluffing <laughs> after the villain has bet the turn? Yeah. Um Generally, the bet one street and then check the next street from a passive opponent, that line means they have a bluff catcher. And passive opponents like to catch bluffs with their bluff catchers. So I generally don't want to bluff here. But if I do bluff, I imagine I'm trying to get this person off of a hand they really want to call with. And I really, really need to try hard. <laughs> If I'm going to do that. So this is a choice between either checking or jamming, if that's even reasonable here, um, given stack sizes and the action so far. I don't really know. But I think if I'm, I'm probably going to, uh, I'm probably just going to check here. But if I bet, I'm betting pretty big. Yeah, I, I think I would just encourage you from trying to get them off of a hand that they really like. Yeah. Um, I think the, the reason to bet here would be to get them off of uh, a hand from their perspective is worthless where like they were bluffing or semi bluffing the turn they didn't get there and now they're giving up the problem with nine high is we can't even beat their give ups so yeah. they could they could be checking fully expecting to lose this pot and then they might end up winning the pot because we check back so my inclination would be to say i'm just going to give up on the idea of getting them off of anything remotely good and just bet like a quarter of the pot or something to get there if they just have missed diamonds and they don't even think about our bet side, there's like, oh, I messed and fold. Like, that's the kind of thing I want to target. So I'm not expecting this. And this, this is, it's a tricky thing to do because it feels bad. You know, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose this pot 80% of the time. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm putting this money out there fully knowing I'm lighting it on fire 80% of the time. But that's correct. Like, if you bet small enough, that's yeah. profitable. If you get 20% folds and, and you only risk a quarter of the pot, that's profitable. So that's, that's kind of what we're going for here. Yeah, I think what I missed is the fact that the flop went check check. And for that reason, even this passive player will have some like one and done bluffs on this turn. Uh, I, I think if this is a case where, say, we bet the flop and they call and then they led into us on the turn. I don't think a passive player is doing that with draws. And so against that line, then I'm definitely not trying to... I, um, trying to get them off of their give ups that are like better than my because I don't think they have those. But when yeah, it goes check in that case, then I think we just don't want to bluff. Period. Right. When it goes check check on the flop, I think even passive players 
bet at least once with their um, draws at that point. And some of them will do it only once and then be looking to give up here. And and if that's the case, which it, it is the case in, in this scenario, I do think we can throw out a small bet just to target the give ups. Yeah. My experience is a lot of people actually bet too often um, on the turn after, after the preflop raiser checks behind. A lot of people just sort of read that as like, oh, they checked that week. And bet where, in fact, the check should be medium, and you should have quite a few calls after you check behind the flop. But a lot of people just will just randomly stab. They might stab with absolutely nothing, like not even any coordination with the board. Just think, oh, I'd like to take this pot down. They don't seem to have anything, so I bet. Um, so I, I think there is a fair chance that many, you know, non-elite players will have have plenty of give ups here. I, I do think it's important. We don't want to target strong hand. Like if you think your opponent is is not going to have give ups in this spot or not going to have like trivial give ups to small bet sizes. I just wouldn't bluff here at all. I don't think it's a good idea to try to get them off of anything that they were checking, thinking it had showdown value. Cause then what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to reevaluate their hand. And most people are bad at that. Most people are not capable of going from, Oh, I thought I had the best hand. Hmm. Better reconsider that. Like, they're they're either checking intending to call or they're checking intending to fold and you don't want to try to take them out of that mode you just want to take advantage of whatever hands they're checking intending to fold if you don't think that that range exists then i just wouldn't bet yeah i 100 agree with that uh, update from gto wizard here it's actually a pure check on the flop so very well done you outplayed both of us <laughs> <laughs> to our nice. our correspondent uh the the software actually does not hate the half pot bet from the villain on the turn either um 83 pot is its uh, most commonly used size on this flop but 24 percent of its range is betting 55 percent pot on the turn this, so that's not necessarily a mistake yeah this is closer to a third and half right am i reading this right 100 into 275 Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, half half or bigger seems to be what the sovereign wants to do. Right. I apologize. And, and the reason for that is like you said, the check back from hero here is a sign of mediumness. And so if we are basically playing this bluff catcher range, then they should have a more polarized bet size um on this turn as yes. opposed to the small bet size here. And that and, and that might be indicative of what you're talking about, which is that range that choose that small bet size might be, you know, might contain some hands that are looking to give up on the river. Um, and so we can like go for a small bet on the river if they check to us there. After the villain bets half pot, which is the smallest size I could tell the sovereign to do. Yeah. Um, after the villain bets half pot, we're doing this is again to your thing about them being polarized. We're doing very little raising. Our strategy here is like, 12% raises, 57% calls, 31% folds. So raising is by far our least frequent action. When we do raise, uh, any five or better is is good enough to raise. So we don't have a lot of 5X or 8X in our check behind range, but when we actually, sevens is not raising. But if we have um, king five, ace five, a little bit of nine, eight or 10, eight to check the flop, those hands are raising. Uh, but mostly we're responding by calling or folding. Nine seven is always a call. And then the river was the offsuit check. And see, she probably doesn't check a lot here on this river card. No, her checking frequency is 19%. Yeah. But when she does check, um, 
Okay. Nine seven is splitting between the the sour here is only using big sizes. It's got a 61%. Even that's not used very often. Mostly the sour response here is shove or check. And it does about half and half. Nine seven is always a shove or it's always a bet. Sometimes a bet 60% pot, but it's never checking behind. Um, and the solver is doing a lot of shoving and a lot of checking in this spot. The shoves are um, slow played like aces and kings, slow played sets, pocket sevens is good enough to shove for value, and then a bunch of misses and a bunch of things that hit the jack. So essentially we're repping that we hit the jack. We have a couple of hands weaker than that that are, that are value betting, but mostly it's just like we're repping, we hit the jack. It's not a, kind of like what you were describing. It's not a very credible story. And so we're using a big size because it is going to be tempting for the opponent to call. So if we want to change their mind about that, we have to charge them a pretty high price because the thing we're selling them is, is awfully appealing. You know? Right. Uh, and I, so I think exploitatively, there is a question of like, can we use a small size just to get them off of like check give ups that they, they probably should have left. Like they're not really supposed to have check give ups, which I think you predicted They're If they have a bad hand that they can't check and call, they should just be bluffing with it themselves. So, you know, exploitatively, you could go for the small size. My expectation is you're not going to get as many folds as the sovereign thinks you should when, when you when you you know go for the big bet to try to get them off of a decent hand. Right, right. I think it's probably targeting like a five or a three. And um this player is probably not folding those hands. In fact, they didn't even fold a deuce <laughs> to uh our hero's bet because hero did go for a 40% pot bet on the river here. And I think he said he got snap called <laughs> by the deuce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, this was not Sovereland, apparently. This was uh yeah. the bike in LA. So big big <laughs> big difference between GTO Wizard and the bike. Thank you, Gary. And thank you everyone who submitted hands. Thank you everyone who is supporting us on Patreon. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, which is both a big help to us to keep the show going and a great opportunity for you to hear lots and lots of strategy from us uh, literally every weekday. The place to do that is patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. Some kind of pill Or the devotion of a car And the light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't Will you, you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't